Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tougher, even if they don't. Today is September the 5th, 2018. This is episode 2285 of the Survival Podcast. And it is Wednesday, which is interview day. That's right, we have a special guest on. A guy many of you know and love, our very own personal Yeti in charge, yes, Patrick Rohrman uh, of MT Knives, expert council member, long-term friend, uh, time friend of the TSP community and the Spirico family, and my personal knife maker. I, yes, I, I have a personal knife maker. If I want something, I'm going to Patrick to get it. Uh, and he's made many of many knives for me, both knives that I've purchased from him that he sells to everybody and knives that have been made specifically for me. And I cannot recommend him high enough. He's going to talk a little bit about knives today, but really what he's going to talk about is something that I think maybe is more universal for this audience, and that is self-employment, entrepreneurship, getting out of the rat race. What it's been like to accomplish something that very few businesses accomplish, five years in business. Uh, Patrick's coming up on his fifth year since he went full-time with MT Knives. In general, if a business can survive for five years, it, it is going to survive long-term. It's, it's, a, it's a big achievement, uh, and, and I'm very happy to have him on to celebrate a little bit and tell you about some cool stuff that's going on, including an opportunity to become a stakeholder. Uh, five years ago, Patrick and I launched his stakeholder program. And when we did that, we sold 100 positions, about $60,000 worth of pre-selled knives. We sold that out in about six and a half minutes, a little under seven minutes. And uh, there's been, I think, one stakeholder in those five years that sold out their position, and it sold for over $2,000. Um, that person sold the knives that they had. Uh, this person selling only the, the first-generation knife. Patrick will tell you more about that. But that's an opportunity that doesn't come along often to be one of the stakeholders, and Patrick will talk about that, how that's impacted his business. Uh, we're going to talk about what he's learned over the last five years, what it takes to be successful, challenges and mistakes made, and things he would have done differently. And I think that will benefit anybody out there that's looking to, uh, to do anything from side hustle to side hustle transition to a full-time business to go all in, you name it, anything in between. And remember what I always say when we talk about entrepreneurial topics. It doesn't even matter if you don't want a business of your own. Thinking of yourself as you, Inc., even as an employee, is one of the best things you can do to improve your life, your stake in where you work, your wealth, everything else around you. So we'll be talking about all of that more in just a moment. But before I bring Patrick on, let's talk about our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is RidgeWallet.com. I love the Ridge Wallet. The Ridge Wallet has made my life better. The fact that I don't drive down the road when I get in my truck anymore anyway with a big lump on my butt, throwing my posture off alone is awesome. Minimalizing down to carrying the things that I actually need to carry in a wallet has been incredible. And it's amazing to me. When they first approached me, I'm like, this seems like a cool product. It protects from identity theft. It's minimalist. I think my audience will like it. I had no idea how big they were. All kinds of places I go and I pull that thing out to pay, they're like, oh, that's the Ridge Wallet. It's, it's, it's just that good. They also have some cool stuff, like they have some phone cases. They have a really cool day pack, recharging pack for your phones. It's a great company with a great reputation, and, and they do a great job. Been with us all year so far this year, and uh, complaints zero. 
And, and trust me, when somebody screws up, I hear about it. I, I heard about something today, nothing to do with a sponsor, but another thing. Yeah, I, when someone screws up, I hear about it. And I don't, when I don't hear anything, I know things are good. So this is a great product. I use it myself. Remember, generally, I don't recommend a product that I don't use. Check them out today, RidgeWallet.com, and know this. If you're an MSB member, you do get a discount. Go to the benefits section of your MSB. Get 10% off all product at RidgeWallet.com. Next up today, ButcherBox.com, our other new sponsor. These guys came on at the beginning of the year uh, together. They really had nothing to do with each other, but I brought them on right about the same time. And I, I just couldn't be more pleased. I've always seen the sponsors that I bring to this show as a service to the listener, not, not just a revenue model. Uh, I want to bring to you guys innovative, interesting, small businesses that I know will take care of you and add value to your life. That's what ButcherBox has done for me. It's like having my own personal meat shopper. Guys, I'm picky. I'm picky when it comes to picking out meat. I will stand and I look at a couple different ribeyes, and Dorothy's like, well, just get one. No, hold on. And that one looks got a little more marbling in it. That one's a little thicker. That one's cut a little bit. I'm like that. And that's the quality that I get out of uh, a butcher box. They send me that box of meat every every uh, every month right to my front gate. I go out there and pick it up. It's packaged perfectly. Good quality meat. Last night we did uh, wings, pastured chicken wings. Uh, those were fantastic. Everything I get from these guys is fantastic. If it wasn't, they wouldn't be around. Uh, I made them send me up. I'll tell you how they got in the door. I said, well, you send me a big-ass box of meat. You let me plow through that, and I'll decide whether or not you get a shot at my audience. And it was great. It's been great ever since. And you get a discount as an MSB member that you can use for free bacon for life. If you're an MSB member, you can check that out again in the benefits section of the Members Support Brigade. And real quick before I bring our good buddy Patrick Rorman online, let's uh, go ahead and hear about a year in history. We're up to the year 152 in our walk through history with David Verne. We're up to Roman farming practices. Uh, 90% of Romans uh, by this year, 152 AD, worked on farms, and any explanation of Roman life would miss a lot without talking about them. Roman farmers used crop rotation methods called food, feed, and fallow. The first year would be a food grain like wheat. The second would be uh, to feed their livestock like oats. And the third year would be left fallow covered with organic matter and manure. A family of six was able to feed themselves with three hectares, about seven and a half acres at the time. Farmers were split into four categories. There were some small farms worked by their owners. Others were sharecropper farmers with tenants. Large slave worked farms owned by the wealthy and other tenant farms. Most farms were large estates owned by the wealthy who bought up smaller farms that had gone bankrupt. At this point in the empire, most smaller farms were plots of land given to soldiers after their 20 years of enlistment was up. This caused a frequent call for redistribution by the lower classes who considered themselves evicted from their farms. Mechanization was also increased to a large extent during the empire. Water wheels were used for sawmills, mines, and grinding grain for flour. A kind of automation reaper was developed called the Gaelic Reaper, or Vallis. It was a cart with two sets of teeth in the front that was pushed by a donkey. Two men operated it, with one steering the donkey, while the other one pushed the grain into the teeth. It was used into the fall of the empire, after which it fell out of use. My take by David Verne, until the Industrial Revolution, most people lived on farms. Most people never went further than a day beyond where they were born. Wealth was determined in many ways, but land was considered respectable wealth. Even though merchants could make more money through trade, farms could make farming wealth gained by uh, trading wasn't considered as respectable. 
and any trading conducted by the wealthy was taken care of by their slaves. Eventually, the rise of banks and corporations would lead to great prosperity for the Italian city-states many centuries after the collapse of the Roman Empire. It just doesn't sound like a lot like today. So little farmers are pushed out by the big farmers. Military comes home, and they're given a retirement. But even though everybody thinks they deserve it, then everybody's upset that they're getting it because it's costing them. It just doesn't sound much different. Um, I'll tell you, though, one of the really big things that I've taught for years that made this country a place people wanted to come to, especially prior to the Industrial Revolution and even for a while after it, and still today, the ability of a private citizen to own land. Now, through much of the world, that has changed, and you can own land. If you're, you know, if you're a citizen of Costa Rica and you want to buy a little homestead, you can buy it. You can go do that now. You can do that in France. You can do. It's actually really hard in the United Kingdom, by the way, though, to get what they call an allotment. It's very difficult. Everything's protected, and you know what have you. The fact that you though, as you know, one step above a slave, could come to this country early on as an indentured servant, work to buy your freedom, and go out and 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 get forty acres and a mule was seen as the main reason people came to this country. You didn't have to be somebody's tenant. You didn't have to be somebody's serf. You could you would you would live or die by your own production, but your destiny was in your own hand. And, and that is the promise of America. I think many ways we we still fall short of it, but it's that promise that makes me proud to be here. Um, I, I don't get proud that I am an American because that's being proud of being expelled from a birth canal and living here when it happened right I had no no impact on that decision whatsoever I don't get to be proud of something I didn't achieve that's the way I look at it however by staying here by being here by contributing by being part of this and by striving for that dream that I'm proud of because that's something I had an impact on and that's something that we can learn through history and we can learn just an observation When a society begins to take pride in their existence, they're primed for a fall. When a society takes pride in what they actually accomplish, then they're still in that building mode. Where are we now? I think we're at a turning point where we have to decide what we're going to be proud in going forward. These are just my thoughts. And with that, I'd like to introduce somebody. I know which decisions he's made on that. He's an incredible dude, a good friend. And I'm really happy to have him with us today, Patrick Rohrman of MT Knives. Hey, Patrick, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, it's great to be here again today. Man, glad to have you on. Look, I know like 80, 90% of the people listening right now know exactly who you are because you've been a friend of the community and, and our family for a long time. You're on the expert council, but you know, there's new people all the time coming in and listening to the show. They don't know who the heck this, uh, this big-looking Yeti guy is. So who, who is Patrick Rohrman? Well, that's a great question, Jack. Um, you know, a lot of people know who I am, like you said, but I still get questions all the day, all the time. Uh, what is the MT Knife Stakeholder Program? What's MT Knives and all that? Um, I'm just a, I'm a jack of all trades, master of none. I'm a, used to be a welder, went from welding into working on power lines. Did that for about seven years. Then I started making knives part-time in the evening, started a side hustle, started listening to this rednet on uh, some podcast called The Survival Podcast, and I thought, you know what, 
I'd like to work for myself and see if I can't make a go of it. So when you did that, you ended up creating MT Knives. Let's talk about MT Knives. What, what exactly is MT Knives? Well, MT Knives is a business that started just uh, out of a passion to I started getting into survival type stuff, learning how to do hand drill fires and wanted to, you know, I just really wanted to be more self-sufficient, be able to um, not be helpless if, if something ever happened, if I got stranded, uh, you know, listening to your podcast helped help me to uh, realize that, you know, there's, there's things that happen every day to people. Um, in fact, I was just in Manhattan, Kansas this last weekend, and not two days after we left there, there was uh, some flash flooding, and a lot of people lost all their stuff. Their apartments got flooded, vehicles got flooded, and, you know, you just realize how often things like that can affect you, and doing some simple things to be prepared can uh, make the difference on whether or not you're left with nothing or, or whether or not you actually live or die. And so I started doing some bushcraft type stuff, and one of the basic needs for bushcraft type things is a knife or a cutting tool. And I was watching Dave Canterbury before he was ever even on TV, just uh, some guy in some little patch of woods with a video camera teaching people how to make spider shelters and stuff like that. And I thought, you know, I've worked with what with metal uh, most of my life, welding and doing stuff like that, but I've never made a knife. And I want to know how to make a knife with really the the most basic tools needed. And so I got on the internet and started looking up videos on how to make knives and found a found a few classes and took some classes and then. I turned that from a hobby into a full-time business. Yeah, yeah. And can you uh, tell us, now you've been doing this five years. I was, I was mentioning kind of the intro before I got you on that five years is a big milestone for a business. There's a psychological thing and all, but, I mean, history shown if a business can survive five years, it can usually survive. And most new businesses, as I know, as I know you know, uh, they fail. Because being a business is tough. Everybody thinks it's a great idea until they have to go do it. Um, what, what have you learned in these five years? <laughs> I've learned, uh, man, it's hard to uh, even narrow it down. I've learned so much. And it's actually uh, been seven, almost eight years since I've started making knives, but it's been full time now. The stakeholder launch was five years ago, uh, I believe on the 24th of last month. So just a few of the things that I've learned is a business really needs time to grow and mature, like planting a tree. And when you plant a tree, maybe an apple tree or some sort of fruit tree, you don't expect to harvest any fruit off of that for at least three or four years, maybe five years. And a business is no different. Um, if you can start a business and not take anything from it and just put back into that business for the first three to five years, you're going to get that business off to a really great start. And that is really hard for people to do. And Another thing about it 
is you have to expect for your first year or two, maybe three, maybe five, to work 80 hours a week, maybe 100 hours a week. My first six six months was a nightmare as far as, you know, the hours I was working, how much it took, how much effort I put into it. And really, it's been the first five years have been just long hours, sleepless nights. Um, but I really feel like my business is getting stable and it's you know, more stable every year as time goes on. I forget what the figures are, but I think it's like 90% of the businesses fail in the first five years. And of those that make it, another 90% fails in the first 10. Yeah, and there's a lot There's a lot with that, too. I think a lot of it has to do with the sector you're in, what your past experience is, how bad you want it, and what your strategy is. So I think a lot of times like people say, well, the business is gone after eight years. Well, if the guy's plan was to sell it and he sold it, I don't consider that necessarily failed. It's just gone because that was his plan all along to sell out. You're trying to build a legacy business, right? Yeah, and there's definitely been some times where I've questioned, like, what exactly I am trying to do and where I'm going to go, where the vision for the vision, the vision for my business now is not exactly what it was when it started. And I mean, it's like a marriage. When you uh, get married, you got a lot of ideas of what it's going to be like. And then when you get married, you find out it's, it's not necessarily in some ways is better. And in some ways it's not, um, <laughs> you know, you know what I mean? <laughs> well, I do. I mean, you know, The first year you ever have real uh, heavy uh, self-employment income, whether it's from business or straight self-employment, you're like, I, I got to do what with Social Security? <laughs> you know, that that alone is like, what? And then, like, you, you get a bill for health insurance. Say, I got to pay this. And even if you thought you were paying your own with your employer, a lot of times you're paying a portion of it. And then, like, okay, like you said, 80 hours, right? So, like, I, I don't remember who it was. It's one of the, the ladies from the Shark Tank show said something like, An entrepreneur is the only type of person in the world who will quit a 40-hour-week job so they can work 80 hours. And, and you have to have a little of something wrong with you. And if somewhere along the road in that, you don't question yourself. You know, I question your sanity. But as you go, I find it gets it gets easier. But it's like I always say, like, like, like certain cures, like it's going to get worse before it gets better. And I think that's a lot of times how entrepreneurial endeavors go. And that's why a lot of people don't make it through that five-year mark, because somewhere along the way, they just go, you know, I could just go back to a job and pay my bills. And I think, in the end, people have to decide, like, am I really wired this way? Do I really want it this bad? Am I really willing to put all this work in so that someday I don't have to put as much work in? Yeah, and that's um, that's the hitting the nail right on the head. You know, there's, I won't lie to you, um, just a few months ago, I've never really used LinkedIn, but I just, out of curiosity, is like, I wonder what kind of work is out there. And there was a um, safety job for a power company in Arkansas, and they wanted somebody with seven years of line experience, and it was like starting at it out at seventy, eighty thousand dollars a year. And I'm like, man, a pud job, you know? <laughs> Sorry, if there's a in the safety rail, but you know, I mean, it's a pretty cush job for eighty thousand dollars a year, and I could still make knives on the side. And, you know, we think people think that they're going to they they get this fairy tale idea. I was just talking to a friend here. It's been about a year ago. And he says, look, you know, you're either going to work for yourself or you're going to work for somebody else. 
if you can't be disciplined to put the time in, you're going to end up working for somebody else. And I know a lot of people think they see the glamour. They see, you know, like you and I going fishing and catching all these fish. They don't, they don't want to see that it took seven, eight years to get to that point and that you took, you know, a day or two out of your schedule. I look back and having 12 paid holidays and two, three weeks of paid vacation time. And I'm just like, man, I would love that. But, but I remind myself why I'm doing what I'm doing. Well, and I think like your situation, like one of the things people need to understand is a lot, like you can go back out as a lineman tomorrow. If you, if you, instead of having your, your, your you know, your, your, your rear echelon job as a safety inspector, like if you're willing to go out and start getting bucket trucks again, you can easily knock down six figures a year. So a lot of people oh, yeah. jump into a business and maybe they were in a, a profession where they were making 40 grand a year. And, you know, there might be a temptation to go back to that. But if they're making 40, 50 grand a year in their business, it, it's maybe not as tempting as somebody that's, you know, in that first couple of years, barely making over minimum wage when you look at all the hours and going, Gee, I could just I could just go get benefits in a six figure salary again. And yeah, I mean I I went through it when I walked away from uh my old world. I TSP was successful, but it wasn't it wasn't that successful. And you 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 walk away from a job where you're paying yourself in your own company hundred fifty grand a year, but you just hate it now and, and you just walk away from that. It's very difficult. And when people hear you on the market and go like, Hey, would you like to talk to us about it's it's tempting, you know, because It is easier, especially early on. And I really thought that I'd be back to, uh, I thought I could, if I worked hard and all this, that I could get to a six-figure income making knives. And I'm not saying that I can't. I'm saying that I'm nowhere even close to that. And, um, you know, in fact, I, I'm eligible for government assistance and if I want it. But that's uh, not something that I believe in. This is a choice that I've made. And this is, uh, I'm making a living. I'm paying my bills. And I'm making progress. It's not about that end of the year, how much you make. As long as you're making enough to make a living, there are sacrifices that, I've made, there's sacrifices that my wife have made and my children have made to do what I am doing. And that's something that nobody will ever fully know unless, you know, you get out there and you start your own business and you start making sacrifices. And, you know, something that really struck a chord with me was uh, I was watching your video from one of the, the workshops. See, when I go to a workshop, I don't get to see what goes on. <laughs> so I watched the videos to see what happened while I was working. <laughs> So, um, you know, you, you made the comment, you said to Dorothy that, uh, just give me one more year. You know, I know that things are, are rough and stuff. Just give me one more year because you and I, I feel like we have a, the ability, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you need to be able to see what can be, not just see what is, but to see what can be. And you know that you have a vision for a brighter future and work towards that. And then a big part of making this all work is execution, because in the end, the people that decide whether you, you, you succeed or fail are your customers. That, that In the end, they, they hold your future in their hands, and a lot of that's execution and improving that execution. So let's talk about some of the things that maybe you have improved yourself over the years i know you've improved some of your processes right like shipping etc how's that worked out yeah so when i you know when i first started shipping you know it just didn't make sense i wasn't doing the volume i'd run a package to the 
the post office. I'd run a knife all the way down to Arkansas just to deliver it to a customer same day. <laughs> but, uh, you know, now as you process more orders, and I don't even know how many orders I process a year, over 500 and sometimes over a dozen a day. Um, I started using a shipping service called Indica, and it's it's wonderful. I just push a button. I can print out shipping or postage right from my computer, slap it on the package, and they come pick it up. And it's making those little improvements that help your business operate so much smoother. It's the little losses. You know, if you got if you're in a boat and you've got a little pinhole, it's not a big deal. But if you've got a hundred pinholes, you know, you're a sinking ship. And so you need to start plugging those holes. And I was wasting a lot of time um, packaging stuff. I would spend entire days sometimes just shipping out orders. And I still have days where I spend the entire day packaging and shipping, but um, it is it's leaps and bounds above what it, what I started. And one day, I might have to actually have somebody that does that for me. I am very picky, and that's one thing that um, is a struggle for me. You know, when I put my tape on my boxes, if you get a wrinkle in it, I'm like, what? <laughs> you know? And then stuff like that, a lot of people think doesn't matter, and it doesn't really matter, but it does show a sense of pride that you take in your work and what I am trying to produce and what I'm trying to deliver to my customer is not the Ford and Chevy. It's, you know, it's everything is perfect. And I know that I'm, you know, not there. And a lot of times taking that time to make everything perfect is, uh, is killing me because what I need to charge for my work, my custom work and what I am charging is is still a long ways from what where it should be. You're at one of those positions where you kind of have to make a decision if you want to really ramp the business up, develop processes where order fulfillment is not something you even touch unless there's a problem to figure out what went wrong in the process, or do you need to charge a hell of a lot more money and make a lot less knives? I mean, that's that's kind of a, a place that you're reaching, in, in my opinion. And I'm also in that position where we've got this, I don't know if it's millennials or whatever generation this is. I found out I'm married to a millennial the other day. <laughs> you're almost one yourself. You're, I mean, you're barely not. Oh, come on. You're like a zennial. <laughs> so, you're a zennial. You're in between the, the X and the... I grew, I grew up thinking it was a big deal when my mom got a bag phone. I remember <laughs> messing with the rabbit ears on my TV. So I waited for dial-up internet. So, but, it, you know, like, I've now, I was trying to figure out how many guys have had work for me now part-time. And it's over four, and I'm getting ready. There's a guy coming next week to... Uh, talk about coming on and apprenticing but you know some of the times i just shake my head and just the, you know it's it's amazing the basic things that people can't do huh. yeah you mean like successfully put diesel in a diesel truck <laughs> I, to, to quote a former president patrick i feel your pain right i mean it's like this is a ratchet do you know how to use a ratchet no do you know what a ratchet is no and you want to work on a farm you don't know what a ratchet is. How old are you? 19. And you're like, I... But that's not their fault. Like, we've talked about this before. That's not their fault. Like, it's their, their parents no, and, and it's a society that is like, I don't know, bubble wrap these kids where they don't experience anything. But and it, I don't mind teaching, but I, I'm just a lousy teacher, you know. My son, um, my tools all got wet, my line tools, and I dried them out and laid them out on the concrete to dry, and I was going to come back and oil them all. And my son knew that. And him being the helpful kid that he is, he uh, got the grease gun and oiled all my tools for me. <laughs> the grease gun! <laughs> I was 
was waiting for this to be a good story, and it is, but not the kind of guy. I thought maybe he actually got some oil, and no, I'll, all right. <laughs> yeah, so I come back, and I've got red high temp grease just smeared all over all my tools, and you know you can't you can't fault him. He was trying to help, <laughs> and I, you know I got bad. I just you know I just had to bite my tongue and thank him for his help and explain to him that grease and oil or you know is two different things and you don't grease hand tools so <laughs> we got that all cleaned up and you know a lot of it is being in a position it's not necessarily that i don't want to teach somebody it's that i don't have time to and i have my own children that i can teach and um and train up and some of them you know want to work for me and want to do that but it's it's a deal of waiting till they're old enough and having the time you know in the i think it's typical for an apprentice to work for a long time five six seven years with no pay you got you got shelter and food that was your pay and your education and in today's society nobody values that education nobody values i shouldn't say nobody most people will not value that and they want you know you were talking the other day about the richest man in Babylon. And you have to be able to see the value in education, see the value, and see the long-term, you know, what you're going to get out of it. And be willing to make the sacrifices for today for that long-term goal or reward. And saving money is the same way, you know. It's, it's hard to save a dollar today when we think we're broke, but if we see what's going to happen in 20 years from now, how that going without that soda pop or going without, you know, taking that next raise and rolling it into your savings, how that's going to enable you to live a different life in 20 years, then you make the sacrifices. Um, in today's day and age where you can go to Walmart and make $10 an hour or better, when I first started working, you know, I think my first job paid like $6 an hour or five fifty an hour. And kid at Walmart the other day was complaining about his wage, and I said, you know, you make good money. You're working in indoors. You're not in the elements. I'm like, you got a pretty posh job. He's like, yeah, well, they only give me, you know, they, they don't even give me 30 hours. I said, well, good. You got time for another job. <laughs> so, Well, and I'll tell you, this is one of those things that I get irritated with people when they start whining about what they can't do and, and what the opportunities they don't have. Walmart only gives you 30 hours, but if you really work your ass off, trust me, the, 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 the pool of people you're competing with, Isn't exactly a bunch of thoroughbred. And anybody that is not, you, know, you can you can be a borderline window licker. As long as you're not a full-on certified window licker. And within two to three years, you should be able to be into some level of management position in Walmart if that's what you want to do. Those guys make between fifty and $65,000 a year plus benefits. And there's advancement beyond that. I don't want to do that. And I'm not suggesting everybody run out and get a job with Walmart. But I'm... Kind of my thing is, like, if that's what's possible at Walmart, then when I hear people whining about what they don't have, I, you, know, you mentioned your first job. My first job, minimum wage, was $3.15 an hour. And so, you know, I understand, like, working a long week and not having much money at the end of it. But in the end, I, I don't think it even really matters what minimum wage is or, or, or what average wages are. It's what, what you do with the opportunity And I think this is why so many people move out of employment to entrepreneurship 
you get to a point where you realize something. I think it's part of like, it's one of your things holding you back, but it's also one of the things that makes you good at what you do. You're not satisfied with what most people find to be more than good enough. So you're never going to be happy in a job because all the people around you make you insane because they don't care enough. And no one's ever going to care as much as you about your stuff, but there's people that are wired in a way that like you care. 100% about what you do, even if you're just stocking shelves in a store. And if the merchandise is supposed to be fronted a certain way, you're going to do it that way. And when your coworker half half-asses it in the other aisle, that you're not even you're not even going to hear anything about it. It bothers you if you're that kind of person, and it's not just garden variety OCD. If it's really because you care, like that tells you that you need to do something either with true entrepreneurship or at least self-employment where you control things. And, and I think in a lot of ways that's who you are from, from my observations over the years. Right. And we never really got to it, but I'll, I'll, I'll kind of back up and go to it. Um, it ties in with what you're talking about. And what I the reason that I work from home and the reason that I make knives is not what most people think. You know, it's not – knives is not my passion. I enjoy knives. I love it. But it's not – it's not my passion, and my passion is is my family and spending time with them. And my daughter got sick this week, and she was supposed to be at work, and she called in, and her boss was like, well, you need to go to the health department and, you know, get us a, a slip saying you were sick. And I'm like, you don't need to go to the health department. You're working at a, you know, like, you're working at a just as lousy job. It's like, you don't need that job. You just tell your boss you're not going to go, and then if they fire you, they fire you. But the, I know why they do that, but at the same time, it's like, I'm sick. I'm making beans, and you want me to waste gas, drive to town. We're 16 miles from town. You want me to drive to town, go to the health department, pay a bill because I'm sick so that I can keep my $9 an hour job? I don't think so. You know, um, I was trying to explain to her how she's working she, half her day's wages is going towards her having a job. And yeah, it's and so we were at a family reunion and somebody else was talking about how he had to hang on to his job for another 10 years so that he could get his retirement. Nobody's going to care about you more than you in a business, an employee. If they have to cut costs, they're going to do it at the expense of the, the employee if they have no other way. It's not because they're evil. It's not because, you know, it's because in the scheme of things, the business is more important than the employee. That's just how businesses run. That is a law of life. Well, yeah, and it, it really is. And, I mean, there are people that I think they are incredibly loyal employees, and they don't understand that in most instances anyway, that business will cut them as, as soon as it needs to. Uh, as soon as it thinks it might need to. Now, there's there's smaller employers. I always try to be good to my people. I had a department one time. I had four people in it, and I was told to take 30000 out of my department. And I could have fired one of the guys and got it done. And I cut everybody's pay, including my own, and I cut my pay more than anybody else's. But the odds are that you're going to find people that do that are pretty damn slim. And when you're working for a company that's traded on NASDAQ, it's not happening. And I think people do need to realize that. Right. When you say spreadsheets don't lie, they've got all this stuff figured out. And that's really been my downfall to some extent is, you know, I got an employee about nine months, six months, I don't remember, into launching and being full time. Now, I had enough capital to pay him, but it got to where I was paying him. I was paying him more than I was taking home, and mm -hmm. I, you know, I was scraping by, and I held on to him for too long. You have to know when 
you know, you, you hate to let somebody go. Yeah. And you hate to, you, to, to do that, but you just have to do it. And when I started my business, the one thing that I kind of, uh, it didn't accomplish what I had hoped that it would do. And, and things took longer than I anticipated. And I felt like I was out of debt, but really what I did was I transferred my debt to a hundred stakeholders and then had to, um, I owed a hundred people, a hundred knives. Sure. And it took three times long as, as, uh, three times longer than I anticipated to get done. And then my business model went from, you know, thinking that I was going to finish up these hundred knives and release another knife in six months to, I'll be happy to have these knives done in the first year. So it was a, it was a pretty rough go at the first year and, and things that I've learned a lot, learned about how to run a business more lean. I've, I've been the type, I'm the type of guy that, you know, being a prepper, if you want to call it that or whatever, um, I like to have things in, you know, to store up things. I like to have steel available and handle material available. And as I learn about business, I learn about running a business lean. If you if you're not turning product, you shouldn't have product sitting on your shelf that isn't going to be gone in the next six months. And that's a that was a hard one for me because especially you know like handle materials, it's kind of a toss up. If you have the money and you can buy material and you can store it and you can sit on it, I feel like that's a good investment because they're not making it's not. A lot of our exotic woods and our really nice stuff, there's not, they're not growing more of it. It's growing, but not as fast as it's being harvested. And so I believe that in, in the long term, some of our, our exotic woods or hardwoods are actually going to be a good investment. But that's where you have to make the decision on running a business lean. Like, that's not your business. Your business is not speculation in hardwood. Right. Correct. Your business is delivery of a product to a customer. And, and that's, that's, that's where, like, you, you, you can be right and it's still not the right decision at the current time for your business. I, I know, you, you know, you talk about being lean. You've gotten much better at living your life, not just in your business, but in your personal life with the philosophy of Excel Never Lies. I've seen your budgets and your spreadsheets. And, and that's probably helped you, you know, make those decisions because, You can only store so much Honduran rosewood before you need to sell yeah. some Honduran rosewood, or you know you've got a problem. Yeah, when you got when you got uh, five thousand dollars, which I don't, but you got five thousand dollars worth of wood sitting on the shelf, and you need five hundred dollars to pay your light bill or whatever it is. You know that wood they don't take that for payment. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's that's definitely the truth. Um, what, what would you say in all of this do you think like is one of the, the biggest secrets to success you've learned? You know, there isn't any new secrets. Like it's, you know, you've, you're, you've talked about it time and time again. It's about being consistent. It's about working hard. It's about, you know, just getting out there and doing it. The, a lot of people, they talk about what they want to do and they, you know, they talk about this and they talk about that and they need this and they need that. It goes back to when, when I was in, I started my first business in like fifth grade. I went and I bought these toys from a Salvation Army, or not Salvation Army, but like a military surplus store. They had these little egg popper things that shot these little pellets, and they were they were super cheap. And I bought I bought like twenty of them and took them to school, and I sold out of them like mm. real fast. So I went back and I bought the entire box, and I got a better price, and I sold some more. And it was going 
going great. I was making money and everything was going fine. And then the government stepped in. The The teacher was trying to figure out where all these pellets that were being shot around the classroom were coming from. <laughs> Somebody narked me out and I had to buy them all back. And in fact, I didn't even get them all back, but I ran out of money real quick. So, you know, I have a history of uh, running businesses and, and dealing with the government shutting you down. But, you know, you, I'd go out there, and if I didn't make money when I was a kid, I'd take the take the mower to town and start mowing yards. Uh, I hung flyers up in grocery stores in the past looking for work, you know, doing handyman-type work. If you want to work, if you want to start a business, there is so much work out there. I see, I see so much work, and what is really stopping somebody from making money is that initiative and that drive, you know, that I don't even know how you – get that into somebody other than just having that desire, you know, teaching, like trying to teach it to my kids, trying to, you know, get them. It's like, I don't buy my kids these things that a lot of people buy them. And we, we kind of have the opposite problem. We have to like shut, we have to like keep our kids from trying to do too many businesses because my, you know, my kids like folding up a paper airplane and going to fold up like 200 of them. And <laughs> I'm going to sell, these, I'm going to sell them for two bucks. And I'm like, well, you got to give somebody value. Yeah. You got to yeah. give value. And, you know, we've seen it at your workshops on the barter blanket. Kids, people love to support them. People love to hand them money. But at the same time, too, we need to make sure that we're teaching our kids to give people value and to give them, you know. Well, and we've seen it. We've seen it wear itself out. Remember that little blonde girl, uh, Callie, right? She had all yeah. her little. She was a good salesperson too, man. But like, you can only sell uh, so you know people on so many uh, homemade little uh, baked dragons or whatever. And people are like, okay, well we've we've patted your head and told you that was good a few times. But I think that's that's easier to fix. The kid that'll do that, right, they just need to learn how to build value. They've got that thing that you're talking about, like, how do I instill it in them? I don't know how you instill that in people. I think it's it's different things. I think some, some people are just unmotivated. I think for some people, though, it's just a mental block. Like, why would somebody pay me? I think that's there. Or they, they just don't think it's possible. It can't be that simple. And I think part of it is sometimes it's a mental block. And then sometimes, like, do you think of a dude's, like, 30 years old, and he's got, like, $50,000 worth of student loan debt, and he's got a degree in something like sociology, and he's struggling to pay his bills. For him to admit, I could walk around yard sales and flip shit on eBay and pay off my student loans in a year, as good as that would be for him, I think some people have a hard time admitting it because then you're like, well, so I, I could have always done that, and that means this is all my fault. And I don't want to see that, so I have to accept the fact that I'm still waiting for somebody to give me a job. I think there's some of that in people, too. And I think, like, if that's in you, it's going to be – and then those same people dream about being an entrepreneur. And it's like that; those two worlds don't go together. They just don't. Right. And, you know, where I'm there, – there's, there's also the kind of where I'm at. Like, remember when we were trying to decide what we are going to sell the stakeholder program for? And – we were trying to come up with a price. Yeah. Thankfully, you had the foresight and the knowledge to say, hey, this is what we're going to sell it at, and we sold it for 550 Had it been any less than that, 
I wouldn't have made it the first year. Um, and looking back, it probably should have been higher. You know, I the way well, I look at it, when you set a price, you should be uncomfortable. Like you should feel it's too high. If you're not uncomfortable with your price, raise your price. Because the market can always tell you to go blow it out your butt. Like we're not we're not paying that, but they might. And like I didn't know anything about the knife industry, but I knew that like that was a number that people would pay. Looking back, I think it should have been higher. You know, but at least we didn't do three hundred dollars. That would have been a disaster. <laughs> yeah, that would have lasted three months, maybe. Yeah. Uh, no. And you know, I'm I'm still at that problem. So I was talking to this guy. He makes the most beautiful hand planes for like working with fur, like woodworking and stuff. Um, and I asked him, "Was you always hate to ask somebody what their price is because you never know what to expect. Yeah. You've got some craftsman that's making this beautiful, you know, widget, and you ask him what his price is, and he's like two hundred bucks, and you thought it would be a thousand, and you're just like, how is he producing that for two hundred bucks? But then you ask somebody else, and you say, well you know, how much is it? And you think it's going to be a thousand and they're like $5,000. And the average person walks away and they're just like, who pays that kind of money for something like that? And so it's no different with making knives. It's been really interesting because when I started making knives, there wasn't, I bet you the, the knife makers, the people that are making knives, I believe has exploded over the last five years. With shows like Forged and Fire and people supporting more handmade um, crafts, the number of knife makers has exploded. And I've seen some people giving away their work, and I've seen some people selling just absolute garbage for expense for you know overpriced stuff. And you know, I look back at some of my earlier work, and I think that it's garbage. But I was talking to this guy that makes these hand planes, and I, so I got to him what what he charges. He charged between two to ten thousand dollars for these planes, and it's a lot similar to what I'm doing. I mean, he's making a cutting tool, he's working working with exotic woods, and he said there's only a handful of plane makers in the world, and a lot of them are selling their planes for quite a bit less, and they and it's it's killing their business, but. They don't charge more because they don't believe people will pay more. But the fact is that they are because he's doing it. And it's no different with knives. You know, the, the third knife that I produce, that Loveless Drop Point Hunter, is a knife that we sold for the ballpark of $500. Loveless was selling those years ago for $3,000 a piece. And trying to decide what that fair price is just, pricing is the most difficult thing I do. Really, honestly, my custom knives should start out about $1,200 a piece. And I believe they'll be there someday and probably someday sooner than later because the busier I get I just start charging what I need to charge for things because when you got 20 30 40 hours in a knife what is your time worth if I'm if I was to charge even $20 an hour and I got 30 hours in a knife that's $600 just in labor not counting my material and you know everything else so it's really difficult for people to believe that you can sell something Our, our pricing is so messed up by things made in China and overseas, things that are mass-produced. We have no concept of what something should be valued at. Even my own family, you know, we, we raise our own cows, we milk our own cows. And, you know, to sell fresh cow's milk from a farm, to sell it for $10 or 
a gallon is not unheard of. And my, you know, my, my mom was like, well, I can go buy milk for three, four dollars a gallon at the store. It's not the same thing. You're not comparing apples to apples. And so the same with uh, the knife world is, or any custom made something. It's not, you, you can't even compare it to a factory produce or, you know, something made overseas. No, absolutely. And it's like when people say that, you're not my customer. The fact that you even think that way means you're not my customer. We had people when we were doing the duck eggs, and they would call us, well, how much are your eggs? $8 a dozen. How much are they wholesale? $8 a dozen. How much if I buy 12 dozen at a time? $8 a dozen. I'm not going to give you a different answer. And if they said something like, as soon as I would hear something like, well, you know, you can get chicken eggs at Walmart for $1.80 a dozen. Bye. <laughs> But I, no, I don't even want to talk I, to, I, I, You know, I don't even want to explain this to you now. I don't know why you called me. I don't know what you're looking for, but it's not here. Goodbye. You know, I mean, think about um, it. Like, imagine, go back to the days of the, the, the great masters, like Michelangelo or something, and somebody said, well, how much is it going to cost to paint my ceiling? And he goes, well, I'll be doing it for 18 years on my back, so it's going to be, you know, the equivalent of today, like, you know, $2 million. Well, I, I got a guy named Joe. He could paint it, like, tomorrow for, like, 50 bucks. Do you think Michelangelo is going to explain to him why he's going to charge more to paint a roof? No. Like, <laughs> like this is what I do. Oh, I didn't understand you were stupid when you asked me to help you, and you didn't know who I was, so bye. And you don't have to be that blunt, but on some level you do, because if you want a $13 knife, Cold Steel will sell you one on Amazon, right? So if that's the knife you want, go buy that. When you get tired of throwing them away, come see me. I mean, that, that's that's kind of the attitude that you have to have if you're in any kind of, from semi-custom up. Because, like, you don't just do custom knives. You do what I would call, like, I see your you know your knife that somebody can just go to your site and buy. It's kind of a semi-custom. You've touched it. You've worked on it. You've specced it. It's made with the steel you insist on. It's, you know, everything's done your way. It's not made in Hong Kong and they stamp empty knives on it, right? It's a totally different type of knife. Right. And, you know, if you could go to any cook, That you, I mean, I don't know, that guy, Alex, the French cooking guy or whatever, right? Yeah. I could go to a million different restaurants and eat from a million different chefs. But if I've been following somebody and I like what they do and I want to experience what that person makes and what that, that person's <laughs> skill and their, their, their masterpiece, what is, they've been building and working on for years... I'm going to pay whatever price he asks, and then I'm going to leave him a nice tip because I appreciate the fact that that person has a passion for what they're doing and that they've taken the time to do what they're doing. Like I joke around, and, and somebody says, well, how long does it take you to make a knife? Well, it's taken me eight years because it's taken. it really took me my whole life because everything that I've learned up until this point goes into making that knife. It And every year, my knives are going to get better than the year before. And even if it's in a little subtle, it becomes more subtle as time goes on. And, you know, like if I could go listen or if I go like eat a meal that um, they like that French guy made, just to be able to experience that and to say that, well, he cooked for me is worth whatever price that we agree upon. Now, you you might not be able to afford to do that, but I might be able to, and I'll do that, you know. And I'll 
that will be a memory that I'll have for the rest of my life. So you're paying a little bit for it's, it's really hard to put a value on something like that. There's a engraver that I follow on Instagram and I'm, I sent off a, a knife to her and she engraved a Genesis with all this scroll work and it, it just, uh, it looked beautiful. And that Genesis is a one of a kind. And it was something that I sharpened and something that she had worked on. And it almost becomes something that you can't really put a price tag on. I just had my father's watch size so it it fits it fits me now and you know it's a it's probably a $200 watch. I wouldn't take $1000 for it. I wouldn't take $10,000 for it because it's not about how much that knife is worth. It's it has something personal to it. And I really think that that is I would like to think that that is what you're purchasing when you buy something that's custom made. You're buying something with a story, something that has an intrinsic value to it. I, I agree 100%. Um, so let's talk about a few things. What would, you, what would you have done differently if we could go roll back the time to five years ago? We're getting ready to do this launch. What would you might have said, hey, Jack, let's do a few things differently now that I got to uh, get it in, in my, uh, my TARDIS and go five years into the future? Yeah, I would, yes, uh, I just geeked. I, I just did, absolutely. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the kind of cheesy thing, oh, I wouldn't change anything. You know, I'm thankful for the way things have, have worked out. I've learned a lot. There was definitely some things that I could have done that would have been smarter um, I should have waited to launch it till January so that I wasn't paying Uncle Sam a stupid amount. Because I had already, at that point in time when we did the launch, I think I had already made or was really close to six figures because I had worked a bunch of storms that year. And then I was trying to pay off debt, so I didn't buy a lot of equipment. Um, I would have done the launch in January and started out fresh or sometime the first of the year, and I would have uh, tried to pay down my debt beforehand by just saving and working on that. If you can't pay down your debt making six figures a year, then you're not going <laughs> to, yeah. you can't pay down your debt. Anywhere. So, uh, and then I would have bought some equipment sooner than I did. And I asked Bill Davis before he passed away, uh, who helped teach me, I asked him what he would have done differently, and he said he would have bought, you know, some some equipment sooner, because it allowed him to make knives better and faster. But you know, it's easy to say what we would have done, um, because you don't really know until it's all, until it's all in the past how things, how that would have changed or affected things. But I think when you went over pretty quick there that like everybody that's thinking about actually forming a company can learn from, if you're going to do something with a product launch, like a Kickstarter or something like that, and you're going to have a capital-intensive uh, delivery, don't do it until January. Don't do it until I did the same thing with another business, right? Like Because if you do it in January, you have the whole tax year to dispose of that revenue in your 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 cash outlay. 
If you do it like we did in August, right, and then you really kind of ramp up in October, and there's expenses you're going to have to pay, but they're not going to they're not going to be executed until the next tax year. You're paying tax on revenue as profit that's not really profit. And that sucks. And you end up making decisions you wouldn't make, like let's dispose of this money somehow or, or what have you. And if you can do a, a true incorporated company like an Inc., you can set your own tax year. And if, if that makes sense to you, do it. But most of us are going to operate as an S-Corp or an LLC, and you don't get to do that. They don't let you do that. They're like, you're going to, you know, January 1 start and end tax year. And, and that cost me a lot of money. I know it, it hurt you, not just because of the income, but because the revenue comes in and then you, you need time to actually spend the money to do it right. You don't just spend it to get rid of it, if that makes sense. Right. You know, and that's the, you know, that's one of the, the biggest advantages to working for yourself and the rich dad, poor dad or whatever, you know, like, um, being able to making $30,000 for yourself is comparable to making probably $50,000 a year for somebody else because, you know, I don't have a commute to work. I can write off some mileage. I can write off some of my utilities. I can write off, you know, all these things. They come off of the top. They don't come off of, you know. So that that in itself, yeah, you don't want to launch a business at the end of the year unless you already have figured out how you're going to allocate those expenses and how you're going to, Keep from paying stupid tax. Well, if you're, if you're not going to have the revenue until the next year, that's okay. But if you're like, like you did a launch, I see people doing Kickstarters and stuff like that. And when I see people do a Kickstarter in November, I'm like, oh, it's going to suck. There's no way you're going to take that revenue to the expense side of the column fast enough. A unless you're chop shopping Chinese product and the, the, as the money comes in, it's going out the door. Otherwise, You're going to take a huge tax hit, and then, yeah, you can write it off next year, but now the money's gone, so you don't have it in your business to operate, and it, it, it blows. It blows so hard. Please, I, 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 I'm literally begging people out there, don't do this to yourself. Like This is like the number one thing I've learned right along with you. In fact, you did it first, and I wish you would have figured it out and told me before I did it right after you. It would have been great to know. <laughs> and you think back, you go, well, that was stupid, that was obvious, but you, you get excited, you know, and... Man, there is something to be excited to momentum going into a business, but there's also strategic thinking. Well, you got to think. So basically, you know, basically, if you can buy a legitimate tool, equipment, something for your business, you can always save 25%. Like, if I have to go buy a new vice for my drill press and it costs $100, by buying that and writing it off on my taxes, I'm saving probably at least 25%. So I don't have to wait for a sale at Harbor Freight. You know, I just go buy it and I write it off on my taxes. And I, you know, I, I would wait for a sale. But you know what I'm saying? Like being a business owner, you know, and that's the other thing. What I did do that I messed up, I took training to make knives that I paid lots of money for that I, I could not write off on my taxes. Had I started my business and then took the training, I could have wrote all that off on my taxes. Um, That's valid. I've been, to, I've been to Texas twice this year. I've been to Atlanta, to Tennessee. I'm getting ready to go to the uh, – I'm getting ready to go back to Adla uh, Georgia to uh, go hike a short portion of the Appalachian Trail. 
all these things are business expenses because I'm doing doing it for business purposes and I'm writing off mileage. Um, I wrote off a ton of mileage last year and that helps keep your realized income down because I drive a $2,000 vehicle that gets um, 23 miles to the gallon. So, you know, it's not costing me 50 cents a mile to drive. Sure. That car has paid for itself time and time again. <laughs> so, Absolutely. Um, the, talking about Kickstarters, Jack, um, I've backed, I backed several Kickstarters. And basically, the, the launch was a Kickstarter of its own. Yeah, it was a Kickstarter without you Kickstarter know, getting a piece of it. <laughs> right. I'm not too sure. Like, it's funny because me being a recipient of that, I'm not a big fan of it because if you have a legitimate business, I think I think working towards that and getting to the point where you can make a go of it is the less is a lesson that you learn that helps you be successful. So it, it's it's basically like going in and getting liposuction, right? Like your goal is to be thin, but you go and you get you know, liposuction, you make a, you, you get to your goal faster, but unless you learn the discipline that you need to get there, it's not, you're not going to maintain it. And so like with these Kickstarters and these launches, I think you, I think that that process, that whole process of getting to that point teaches you a lot and teaches you how to, to keep it and how to get there and, and be successful. Uh, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, here's how I see Kickstarter as being a good thing. The person who's already done the math, already knows the timeline of production, has a new product idea, probably is a successful entrepreneur already, and uses it versus going to the bank to borrow money. Because I don't want to borrow money from the bank because I want to establish kind of this initial customer relationship that feels like they have buy into what I'm doing and kind of that direct path of funding, I think it makes a lot of sense. And that's how some Kickstarters are done. And they're the most successful ones. They're the ones where you and I look at and go, how the hell did this guy do $2.5 million on a you know a little box that you plug your computer into and you, you, you hook up to the Tor network? Well, because if you look at that guy, he was on like the Today Show and all these other morning shows and stuff like that. They had a PR firm. They didn't get the money and they go, gee, let's, let's figure out how to make these now. They had already made one. They already went to, you know, several shops and they said, how much is this going to cost? How many are you going to buy? They already had a, they already knew, like, if we do initial 500, it's going to be this much, initial 1000, it's going to be this. They had everything down and it was a lot like going to a bank to get a loan. I think that some of the ones like that, that I've done and back, like, you're not really sure and you're test marketing the product and that's okay. But I think looking back at it, you'd be better off just, just put up for sale. Just put up for sale, see if anybody yeah. buys it. And if, like, if you get like three orders and, you know, it's not worth doing it for that, just say, you know what? We gave it a shot. Here's your money back. You know, that way you're not stuck with this huge obligation to people that you feel that you need to fulfill. And if it does work and then you end up with the problem people are worried about, which is, Now I have more business I can fill. You put that shit in a spreadsheet and you take your happy little ass to the small business loan officer at your local bank and go, here's my orders I can't fill. Guess what? They will give you money. If you can show, like, if you give me this, by this date I'll have this much revenue in and I can pay you back by then 
and I've already done the math, and here it is, and here's my paperwork, and here's my books, they will throw money at you. Now, they won't throw you a million dollars if you need 10000 but the money you need, they'll give you. And then every time you need that funding and you go back to that loan officer, it gets easier. There's, this was this is true in business, and it's true in sales. Like Even when I was a salesperson in a company, and they're like, well, we're behind on production of this, I go sell the hell out of it. You know what fixes problems like that? Purchase orders. You get enough purchase orders, you, you, the money or production, you solve that later, and you always can. So it's that's kind of where I'm coming from on the Kickstarter at this point. I don't know that I'll ever do another one. And if I do, then it probably will be like we did with you. It will not be through some agency or some third-party platform. Because the only reason really to go to Kickstarter or Indiegogo or something is a belief that you can prime that pump enough to get featured in their community and grab more incremental business from their community than they're going to take back from you. And I have not right. seen that be the case. And again, if you've got enough money initially to push things like through with a professional PR firm that can get you on you know, morning shows and stuff like that, well, then maybe. So I, I don't know if that's a long answer, but I mean, that's, that's what I've derived over the last five years of looking at it. Well, and I think you hit the nail on the head is, you know, like I backed one, it was this puzzle box and it was, it was cool. The guy made one, he had one that worked. That's great. Well, he did ex almost exactly what I did with my stakeholder launch. His was successful. He sold a lot of them. He had no realistic expectation on how long they were going to take. Yeah. He, I, I still ain't got it. I even messaged This is a guy, and I said, look, man, I understand where you're at, pieces, and I'll finish it. <laughs> you know? Because, like, I, I felt bad. I'm not angry at that guy. If you're listening, which I doubt he is, but, you know, like, I, I have no, like, oh, I'm a little upset I, I lost some money, but, you know, I'm not upset. That was my decision. And, you know, that's one thing. I am very thankful for my stakeholders. There have been plenty of instances where they could have been upset with me, and if they were, most of them haven't, you know, voiced that. And I, I feel like in some ways I have uh, not delivered, but in other ways I feel like I've over-delivered. And, you know, with the last stakeholder auction that was, what was it, a year or two, two years ago now, I think a stakeholder sold his position and it brought $2,551, $2,551. And he sold his other knives that he had for, I think, close to $1,000 a piece. So he... He made a return on his investment, and I really, you know, like we're talking, I think we did, did to some extent the stakeholder position. I believe that the value is much more than what they paid for it. I think there's been three positions that have sold. All of them have brought over $2,000. So I feel like I have uh, done well in meeting You know, that expectation, but at the same time, too, like, it hasn't been exactly what I, I, what I had thought. I'd hoped to have, like, several production knives out by now and um, still working on that. But So on that, let's just kind of wrap up here. We're well over an hour now. Um, people actually have a chance right now to become a stakeholder. You've got one up for auction on your site, correct? Yes, sir. There is a uh, – I'll send you the link. To that auction, there's a stakeholder number 066. That uh, stakeholder actually sent me the knives. Um, I cleaned up one of the bolsters, had a little bit of tarnish on it, and I cleaned that up. And I'm actually doing the auction. He's selling it. Um, but 
I have the knives in my possession, so I'll be shipping it to whoever the winner is. But he's and, only he's only selling his alpha, right? The first knife. Well, he's selling his alpha, but I have the Ranger and the uh, and his kitchen knife, his O four LE. So the only one missing from the set is the General, and I might try to find out where it's at and see if if somebody you know if the stakeholder that buys it wants to complete the set. I'll do what I can to yeah. to make that happen. If we can't, so he's, but, he's auctioning the, the the stakeholder knife, the original stakeholder knife, and then he's going to want to auction his other knife separately. Is that kind of how he's doing it, or yeah, well, or he's going to offer it to whoever gets the winning bid. He he li- he really wanted to kind of keep the knives, but you know if he if they uh, if they can agree upon a price, then he'll sell the whole set. Okay. All right. You well, know, it's kind of one of those deals where if you throw in all the knives, you know, maybe somebody doesn't want all the knives, or maybe you know, it you've got a lot more out on the table and a lot higher bids. So um, <clears throat> we'll see how it goes. The yeah. last one was uh, a huge success, so we'll see how this one goes. Yeah, it was over two grand. I chased it up to like eighteen hundred bucks, and I think I had a major appliance replacement, like I just did again, and I was like, okay, that's 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 enough. I already have one. Um, but that does kind of tell you the value that even people that already have positions have, have bid on these and wanted another one. Uh, I'd like to have one to leave to my, you know, my kid or my, my grandkids or something, honestly. Um, so if you guys want to bid on this, you can get over to Patrick's website. I'll have a link in the show notes. And on another note, like you do have knives for sale. You've got, um, in fact, you've got a new knife and I think it's in pretty limited quantities, right? The, uh, the talent, you want to tell people about that real quick? Yeah, so the Talon is a is a super small, lightweight EDC neck knife. It's um it's just like a two finger knife. I made it for somebody who wanted something a little bit smaller, lighter weight. Um, and I haven't even I I'm I just sold the last one off the site. I will have some more up there in the next few weeks. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast late, like a lot of people do, then check the site. Um, the talent is, it's been, I have, I've sold some on Instagram and some on the site and I've sold more than I can keep up with. So it's been, I didn't know how it would, how people would receive it. It's not a production knife. It's fully custom. Um, when I had some help here, he cut, cut them out and drilled them and then started to grind them. And then I clean them up and finish them. And it's a, it's a great little knife. I think it's, a lot of people, I know some people are like, well, what would you do with a knife that size? But really, for most things that you use a knife for, you don't need a very long blade. No, I use mine You've all got, the time. I've got mine on my keychain because it's, it's you know, that kind of a knife that you can do that with. So I've I, I, I made a key fob to go with it, and I've got it on my keychain, and I carry my Genesis as my day-to-day neck knife. But um, I think it's a fantastic little knife. I was kind of surprised. I have a stakeholder up in Washington um, that works um, – kind of border patrol i think or does like swift water rescue and does all sorts of stuff he's always hiking and climbing in the mountains and he prefers to carry that uh talon over his genesis and he's just been loving it and putting it to work so that's uh pretty neat i'm gonna send dixie one um and get her feedback on what she thinks if she likes the genesis or if she likes the lighter weight it's great for somebody that's active and you know wants something small that if I could only get them to be like TSA approved, I think we'd really have something then. 
Well, and I think for some women it might be a little bit better of a knife because women have a certain endowment that we don't, and sometimes even a knife the size of the Genesis, if they want to carry inside the shirt, it doesn't carry as seamlessly or what have you. So um, I think it's a fantastic little knife. Now, on another note, because we do need to wrap up here, bud, um, you're going to be teaching at my fall workshop, and I've just decided today, because I want to geek out and go look at lizards and snakes on the 22nd, uh, to 29th of September is when tickets for that's going to go on sale. It's going to be the best workshop we've ever done. I promise you guys that. You're going to be doing a workshop where people can learn to make knives with you. We don't need to give out the full details yet, but... Um, Just you want to give kind of the basics of what what you're going to be doing there? Yeah, so this is going to be like the third or fourth time that uh, we've had students there at your place make a knife, and it's been great. I've had different size classes. This time it's going to be a lot smaller class. You know, there's there's plenty of testimonies, I think, of people that have gone to it. They've had a great time. Uh, I'm going to keep the class size down smaller, really get people the, the time that and one-on-one working with them, teaching them how to grind a knife, teaching them how to, to put the handles on. And this this will be a great for a class for somebody that maybe wants to learn how to make knives or even somebody that just wants to make one and show their friends and say, hey, you know, I made this. And it's always funny because some people that go to the class, they say, well, you know, I didn't really I didn't really make it. He made it. But, you know, they, they didn't make it. They uh, – I will a lot of times help – fix some of their mistakes and and clean it up afterwards so that when you leave you know you're going to leave with something pretty close to the quality that I'm putting out because I want you to have something that you can be proud of that you can show your friends and um I think that that's just uh now if you really just don't want me to touch it and you want to do it all on your own uh we have that too there was a guy in the last class like that and then After he started looking at all the other students' knives, he's like, you know what? Go ahead yeah. and do your thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's, you know, you, you, at this point, you've uh, you've made a few. And uh, you can do something that even if the person eventually gets it done in two days, you can do it in sometimes 20 minutes. And, you know, you only have so many days at a workshop like this to get everything done and wrapped up. So we'll have full details that will come out right when the tickets go on sale or maybe a little bit before. But just know, guys, if you're planning on coming here in November, and it, it's, again, let me – Make sure it's the week of November 11th, but it is going to be well, people arriving on the 7th, and then I will throw you out early on the 11th. Uh, it's going to be a, a pretty fantastic workshop. Uh, there's a bunch of us kind of working on the, the final schedule and all right now, but dude, uh, I'm looking forward to seeing you there. Uh, I appreciate you being with us today. I appreciate your service on the Expert Council. And, uh, man, man, thanks for hanging out with me this afternoon, and, and I hope you have a great afternoon. And go make some more knives get them out the door. Hey, thanks, Jack. And I'd like to say thank you to all your listeners. Uh, I couldn't do today what I do without the support of the TSP community. And uh, just thanks a lot. You guys have a great weekend, and we'll talk to you later. All right, folks, uh, always fun to talk to Patrick. And uh, definitely, if you've, if you've wanted to be a stakeholder in the MT Knife Stakeholder Program. Like I said, the opportunity to do that doesn't come up uh, very often. And uh, get over and bid. Who knows, you might be the winning bidder. And uh, just a, it's a great program to be part of. Uh, I am Stakeholder 001. Uh, I was in early, like before it even happened, and that was kind of uh, my requirement uh, to, to help Patrick get his business off the ground. And that's the... Uh, 
The only compensation I took in, in the entire process of helping him get that program established was that number one position, and uh, I don't think mine will ever go up for auction. Uh, anyway, there is one up for auction. It is stakeholder position 66, and uh, there will be a link in the show notes. And, and check out Patrick's Nice. If you don't own a Genesis yet, you, you probably should. It's... I would say the the Genesis neck knife is the best knife on the market under two hundred dollars. There there is there is no competitor with that knife at that price point. It's not a cheap knife, but it's the kind of knife you you only need to buy one for the rest of your life. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and remind you if you want to help this support this show and the work that we do here, you can uh, help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's t s p a z dot com. Tspaz dot com. I'll go real quick because we went kind of long there, but our item of the day today is the For Life, F-O-R-L-I-F-E, one word, tea infuser. Now we're talking about knives all day today, now we're talking about tea. Um, I'm a guy I like to drink tea. I like herbal teas. I use herbal teas for just refreshment. I use herbal teas for relaxation. I use herbal teas for medicinal purposes. And there's sometimes I'm doing things with herbal teas where I'm making them really strong because it's a medicinal thing or wash. And this is like my go-to. Uh, if I'm making small amounts, let's say a, a large cup or smaller at a time, you can get a cheaper infuser. But it's a lot like Patrick was saying. You can buy cheap or you can buy good. Uh, this is this is damn solid. And it's not real expensive. They're like 18 bucks. I can't see a day that the thing ever breaks or wears out. Uh, unless you drop it and drive a car over it or something like that. It's made out of heavy-gauge stainless steel. I've even got a little video in the review for it uh, where you can see kind of why I think it is about the best tea infuser you can get on the market today uh, in the, the, the review. And uh, you just scroll down and see it at thesurvivalpodcast.com or find it by clicking on a think link for all the reviews at tspaz.com. Remember, as long as you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, you help support the Survival Podcast and our work no matter what you eventually buy. That brings us to our song of the day. Again, uh, the guy that we're featuring this, this week is a guy named Jamie Dupree. Um, and he is a guitarist. He plays a, a guitar called a harp guitar. And I think yesterday I said it's two, it's really three sets of strings. It's got kind of a set of strings where a normal guitar would. It has this kind of harp overlay that comes across the top. There's a second group of strings. And then there's a, a third group of strings down below the typical fret where those thing, strings are just, I guess you'd call, I'm not a guitarist, so I don't know, like plucking strings. Like you're not doing anything with a fret. They just are like another. So this gives the guitarist all of this flexibility in music. And the guy's music is beautiful. And it's just a guy that you know taught himself to play guitar and decided he wanted to put his gift out there and used YouTube as the main way to get it out there. Uh, he's a perfect example of a modern entrepreneur that can do what you love and reach a lot of people. And this cover is a song that I love the original, and I love the cover that was done by the band Disturbed more recently, the original done uh, by Simon and Garfunkel, Sound of Silence. And... Even though this is all instrumental, this might be my favorite version of this song. Hope you enjoy it. Hope you enjoyed today's show. If you're thinking about building a business of your own, I hope the stuff you heard today inspires you to get out there and make it happen. And with that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't.
Thank、you